Hey, how are you? Oh my gosh. Hey, Kara. <laughs> hey, Chris. What's going on with you? There's like a false start there. <laughs> hey, hey, you, other person on the other end of this recording. <laughs> I've gone off. I've gone off. I'm tired. It is registration week, which means I am flooded with emails on a yeah. daily basis by students demanding to be let into my class. Cool. No. No. Well, yeah, you're no. in demand. Yeah, the, the 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 rumor is I have a slight cult following, but you know what that means? It just means more work for me, and me having to deal with a rather antiquated registration system means a lot more work and frustration. Mm. Alas. Alas. What else is going on? Anything new? I got I got a rejection for a grant on Friday. All so right. There's that. Oh, I had a paper mm. accepted Friday as well. There we go. Perfect. Ups and See? downs. Ups and downs. Medical updates. Uh, Aaron, my husband, had a septoplasty last Friday, which is the correction for a deviated septum. He's actually doing surprisingly well. He's not black and blue. Like, it's weird, and he's in very little pain. But the amount of, like, bloody snot globs <laughs> that have been escaping his nose have made life really interesting recently. Bloody snot globs, yeah. <laughs> Punk rock band. Yeah, it would have to be, right? My first band's first cassette was called Stomach Full of Blood. And I called it that because we were called the Morning Shakes and it sounded glamorous. But really what it was is I had a nosebleed and I tried to stop it and had grabbed a bunch of tissues and dropped them in the sink. And it just looked so horrible. I took a picture of it and ended up using it as the cover and, nice. it and made it sound more sort of like rock and roll and edgy than it, it really was. Well, if you need an update to that cover, I'm sure Aaron would be more than happy to oblige. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Different life. I'm trying to think of uh, what what is going on with me. Well, I'm trying to get an IRB together to do summer research. So I know all of our listeners, if our grad students and our other listeners are probably all in the same boat. I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to be able to go to Samoa this summer. They're on lockdown, too. They are. They finally got COVID. So now they're locked down. So now we are doing what our wonderful producer Alex had done, trying to figure out how to set something up. Uh, for data collection so that we can start a project even if we can't go there and we're going to start in Hawaii this summer so that's a horrible prospect Darn. to look forward to I have to go to Hawaii this Tough summer life. and let's see I finally for the first time I'll, I'm going to brag slightly because this is one of the things that all of us who ever try to get jobs and then also get grants that include summer salary look forward to now that I can finally start using the grant that I got two years ago for summer research, I finally get the money, the summer salary piece of it released. So either I can pay the $10,000 I owe in back taxes, or I can finally get my kids their graduation present trips to Europe. I'm going to get a graduation present. Good for you. Yeah. Maybe, anyway. Maybe we should talk about today's interviewee. No, today's interviewee is someone who we can talk to about all these sort of like logistic issues because he also has lots with where he's a professor and what he does and all kinds of stuff. So who is it? He is a good friend and colleague, Dr. Adam Van Arsdale, who is a professor okay. of anthropology. At Wellesley, which is Wellesley. traditionally a women's college. He is interested in the various ways we try to construct knowledge about the human condition and paleoanthropology. And he is particularly interested in how we employ evolutionary theory to understand human biological variation, 
by looking at the patterns of variation in the human fossil record. Uh, and he has worked in the Demenisi, Georgia fossil site, as well as in Kazakhstan. But most importantly, he got his PhD from the University of Michigan, and he was a grad student there while I was an undergrad. So I've known Adam for a very long time, and I still feel like a child in his presence because, like, I was an undergrad, and, like, it doesn't seem right that we're, like, colleagues now. That's super cool. Well, let's bring him in. Adam, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? We're great. Welcome to the Sausage of Science podcast. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the show. Most importantly, you should know that I introduced you as a Michigan grad because that is a constant source of like poking at one another that Chris and I do. And that I always feel weird when I talk to people who are grad students at Michigan when I was an undergrad because I still feel like a child in the presence of you folks. So. I think that just makes me feel old. <laughs> We are all doing things like aging and breeding and the things that mark us in other ways. So, uh, Adam, I hate to tell you, <laughs> we're getting old. I know. We all are indeed. So let's start off the way we always do, right? And our show is a play on words, so we don't really want to know how the sausage is made. We want to know how the science is made, as well as the scientists who make it. So why don't you start us off by telling us, your background, obviously you ended up at some point in Michigan, but there are some other places along the way. Why you chose to become a paleoanthropologist for a career and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show in the first place. I usually start my sort of origin story in this context by pointing out that as someone who studies human evolution, my father is actually still a pastor. He's retired, but he, he still guest preaches on Sundays. Uh, my grandfather was a pastor. He was an American Baptist pastor. My mother-in-law was actually an ordained Presbyterian minister. But despite that, my decision to go into studying human evolution was not like some angsty teenage decision to reject my parents. But I think in some ways actually comes out of the experience I had, especially via my, my dad and his dad, in terms of the kinds of things we did as kids, which was all of our family vacations ever. I have two older brothers. We're all driving to state and national parks, basically, and hanging out outside. And my oldest brother ended up being really interested in biology. So he briefly pursued graduate program in marine biology before becoming a high school science teacher. But he would always take me like out mucking for like salamanders and crayfish and things like that. And I was just very interested in the outside world, nature and evolution as a result. And it really come out of, I think, my dad and his dad's sort of natural theology in terms of appreciation for the outside world, appreciation for, in, in their view, you know, a sort of a theological creation. But they never had any beef with me taking a slightly different approach to understanding the outside natural world. So I was really interested in just nature in general. Uh, went to undergrad, so I went to Emory University for undergrad, was a double major in English literature, and Emory has an anthropology and human biology BS. So I got a bachelor's of science in anthropology and human biology. I originally started off as a bio major, but organismal, micro, bio, pre-med wasn't really what I was interested in. I was more interested in issues of ecology and people. So anthropology was a great fit. And my junior year of undergrad, so second semester of my junior year, I took a seminar that was a modern human origins seminar. Uh, it was the first paleoanthropology course that I took as an undergrad. It wasn't taught by a uh, paleoanthropologist. It was taught by Michelle Lample. So somebody does growth in human biology more than paleoanthropology, but I was completely hooked. It was a small seminar class, you know, maybe 14 students. And like, I was really, really into it. It was the kind of class where like Friday nights, I would be like bothering my friends 
at like parties about like Australopithecines or like Neanderthals or the Shadow Peronian tool industry. And that was a, a cue to me that, you know, maybe this is something worth pursuing further. Made preparations to do a senior thesis then. And my, this is like the late 90s. At the time, there was discussion about, there was really an emerging body of evidence around autosomal genetic variation in humans and what that says about the timing of human origins. So what was the size of the ancestral human population? When did we emerge as a species? Uh, and one of the questions was, was, was there this bottleneck, so this collapse of the human species late in the Pleistocene, sometimes say 60 to 80,000 years ago, that was associated either with the origin of Homo sapiens or the origin of quote unquote modern Homo sapiens. And so my senior thesis ended up being sort of self-taught population genetics, kind of putting together different lines of emerging evidence that was coming out of the 90s. So not just mitochondrial DNA variation, but also Y chromosome and autosomal DNA variation as to whether or not these different genetic loci, these different genetic systems were providing the same view as to what was going on to the human population in the late Pleistocene. Uh, so that really got me hooked into paleoanthropology. At the time, actually, Milford Wolpoff at the University of Michigan had a grad student, John Hawks, who this was very close to what he was doing for his PhD dissertation at the time. So I actually met John in the process of doing my senior thesis, met Milford. My parents had actually recently moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan. So I had a connection to Michigan and met Milford, got into grad school, went from there. And that's, that's sort of how I began. That's my origin story. I was born outside of Rochester. The Van Arsdales, if you go back, uh, there's a lot of them in the, the Finger Lakes area. Yeah, strong my Dutch. Grandfather, yeah, when I mentioned my grandfather as a pastor, you know, outside natural world, there was all like New York State parks that he would take us to. Hmm. And so, it's also interesting that your parents ended up moving out to Western Michigan, where there's actually also a strong Dutch presence there as well. Having taught at Grand Valley, there were a lot of Van... But we're yeah. not really very Dutch. Like, I mean... I was, I was once in a coffee shop in Tbilisi and this Azerbaijani student who was taking English lessons like stopped me and he asked me, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm from America. And he said, no, but where are you from? I said, well, I mean, kind of just from America. He's like, but you're not Native American. Where are you like from from? And I was like, oh, well, like Dutch and German and English, but like, you know, not any strong connections to any of those. And he was very offended because he had been living in Tbilisi, his family, for, he said, 800 years, and they still had very strong Azerbaijani connections. So it's, you know, part of the reality of our settler colonial existence in the United States. It's very, very true. The one part of your story that I really identified with was the Friday night discussions of Australopithecines with friends at either bars or houses or things like that. I was totally that annoying friend shouting and spouting these facts off to my friends who had no desire to hear or learn any of it. So it is nice to know there are others out there. So thank you. <laughs> Keep being yeah. those friends, everybody. To, to add one little colorful detail to this, there was a paper, and I think it was in 1997, I should know this, 1996 or 1997, a Martin Lahr and Robert Foley paper towards the theory of modern human origins that I used to carry around with me because I liked it so much. I kept it in my backpack. It's a little bit ironic because I've, I've moved in different theoretical directions, but... I had a paper like that, but it wasn't until grad school that I had a paper like that. But it was also one I carried around and read multiple times, so I get it. I do. 
Uh, anyway, but speaking of where directions and how things have changed, so we fairly recently got back from the AABA conference just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and there you gave two presentations, and the first one was The Modernity That Wasn't, The Archaic State of Contemporary Human Origins. Uh, and in the abstract, you say, uh, along with your co-authors, Michelle Glantz and Sheila Athrea, the notion of anatomically modern humans privileges specific geographic and historical definitions of modernity. And discussions of our origins are largely atheoretical and discovery driven, rendered without regard to the contextual specificity of the evolutionary landscapes of the Pleistocene. One, love the writing. Two, please unpack it for all of our listeners. <laughs> Oof, coming in hot. So this is a paper that really stems out of conversations that Sheila and Micah and I have had for a couple of years. Uh, I've been working with Micah in Central Asia now, going back to 2013 in Kazakhstan. Sheila's been working in South Asia and East Asia her entire career. And really, this specific paper stemmed out of Sheila really coming to us and being like, her frustration, this is something she's written about a bunch. The exclusion, really, of the Asian, not just the Asian fossil record, the Asian archaeological record, and how we think about the origin of contemporary humans, but the exclusion of Asian scholars as part of that. And also just the inconsistency with ideas of modernity as discussed in the fossil record in human evolution for the evidence that she has spent her career looking at in East and South Asia in terms of how we think about human variation and what, what we mean by that word modernity. And so in some of her earlier writings, you know, critiqued how this notion of modernity itself is kind of tied into the history of practice. And part of this sort of growing older in a scholar is increasing, I think, a tentativeness for me, and a lot of this comes out of my teaching, I'll say, on where our ideas come from, the sort of intellectual trajectory of the ideas that we have, with the idea that, you know, one of the often unspoken biases in science that's really, I think, very, very important is we're biased by what we already know or what we already think we know. You know, we see science as this cumulative and iterative process where we build up this body of knowledge and are constantly refining it. But it starts from somewhere and those seeds grow and sort of we're building off this existing structure. And going back to sort of our paper, the three of us had this real goal to interrogate that structure of how we think about modernity. We all came of age in the field at a time, sort of the peak of the modern human origins debates of the 90s, early 2000s, the multi-regional versus out of Africa kinds of arguments when it comes to human origins, which are largely discussions about sort of what constitutes a modern human and what is the process associated with that. In the 20 plus years since that time, there's been a huge, huge amount of new discoveries, new research, even new sort of theoretical ways of exploring the past, if we think about ancient DNA, that have radically changed in many ways the evidence we use to think about modern human origins, but haven't super fundamentally changed the basic conceptual structure that we use to look at it. So we still think about anatomically modern Homo sapiens. What are the features that we associate with anatomical modernity? We still think about the Upper Paleolithic and the initial Upper Paleolithic in terms of the archaeological record as being oftentimes a signal of those anatomically modern Homo sapiens, even if we don't have those fossils available for us. We think about increasingly genetics as, you know, folks who align phylogenetically with contemporary humans as being genetically modern humans. So you don't see that term quite as much used in the genetic literature, but, but functionally that's sort of how it's operating. So we really wanted to break down this idea and say, actually, if we were to start from scratch today and look at the evidence 
and in our case, we're focusing on the fossils because we're more sort of fossil folks for the origin of contemporary humans, where would that evidence take us to? Like, what would we be looking at? So the first part was, uh, Micah doing a lot of this work, a GIS investigation, basically, of if we just try and compile a list, and we kind of mostly excluded Europe because there's obviously a long history of fossil work in Europe. There's some taphonomic reasons in terms of European cave sites where we just have a lot more fossils, a lot more archeological material from Europe than we do from the rest of the world. That's just sort of a given. But if we compare Africa versus Asia, where do we find more evidence? And we've got a lot more fossil evidence coming out of Asia than we do from Africa. We have more cave sites, more sites that have sort of long stratified sequences in Africa associated with contemporary human origins than we do in Africa, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, Africa is in the center of our evolutionary past, but it means that our gaze should be looking a lot more at Asia probably than it is. We then did a morphological analysis, and this was headed a large part by, by Sheila, sort of trying to look at, in this case, we're looking at cranial variation to basically say, you know, do we see evidence of anatomical modernity existing as sort of a typological, at least mode of similarity? Do we see this pattern of similarity where we see this discontinuity between, you know, quote unquote, pre-modern or, uh, you know, archaic fossils in Asia versus the quote unquote modern ones that come in? And you don't really see that. Uh, what you do see potential evidence of is the fossil record coming out of Asia in the late Pleistocene shows a broader range of variation than we are sampling within Africa. And maybe that just reflects a truer range of variation in the fossils of that time period. The third part of the, the paper, which I was sort of heading, was actually doing a, a citation network analysis, looking at the scholarly history around anatomically modern Homo sapiens. So actually looking at publications that have referenced anatomically modern Homo sapiens or just modern human origins more broadly, and looking at sort of what the landscape of publication, the sort of history of scholarship around that idea, what it looks like. And a couple of things kind of emerge out of that analysis. One is that genetics has played a outsized role in the last 20 years in sort of shaping our understandings of that. Going back to the 1980s, you know, we think about the origin of mitochondrial DNA and looking at mitochondrial DNA and, you know, Cannon, and Stone King and Wilson. In the 20 aughts, we begin to get, you know, ancient DNA at a much larger scale, looking at the Neanderthal genome. Now we think about Denisovans and all these kinds of things. And so genetics is sort of a big filter point for some of these things. The other thing is that if we think back to those classic modern human origins arguments between sort of the out of Africa, multi-regional kinds of arguments, the out of Africa folks largely, if we look at the published literature, won in terms of the fact that they are more heavily cited. They are sort of the larger nodes within the metrics. So they get more citations. They're more central in terms of the articles that cite them as well. And what I thought was really interesting is if we look at sort of the alternative argument. So if we look at, for example, the Wolpoff, Thorne, and Wu 1984 paper, which is the first paper where they really lay out a multi-regional evolution kind of model, it is largely understood through Stringer and Andrews 1989. So they've got a, a chapter in 1989 volume where they're looking at genetics and, and modern human origins. And it is the main hub through which the Wolpoff 84 article sort of gets interpreted. So our interpretation of sort of the history of modern human origins is definitely filtered, not, not necessarily, you know, I, I don't mean just to criticize those folks on the sort of out of Africa kind of side of these things, but it's just a reality of the history of these ideas. Like, you know, why we are still oftentimes thinking about modernity as a typological concept. And just the final point we threw in that, if we look in the last decade, the new names that have entered into our understanding of the late Pleistocene fossil record, 
folks like Denisovans. So these fossils, some fossils, mainly genetic evidence coming out of Central and East Asia for a not Neanderthal, not modern human. If we look at the recent skull from China that's been dubbed Homo Longi, so the dragon caveman. If we look at the material coming out of the Philippines, Homo Louisiensis, or even Homo Floresiensis, there are a bunch of new fossils or new groups that have emerged, and they're disproportionately in the periphery of Asia. We got asked, why is that the case? You know, is it the case that there's this radiation of human populations or human species in Asia in the late Pleistocene? Maybe. Or is it that this African-dominated view of modernity, that typology of that doesn't fit well with what we're seeing in East Asia? And I should say when I say African-dominated, I really mean Africa from the perspective of Europe. Because so often how modernity gets defined in the fossil record, the archaeological record, is what is emerging within Africa that looks like what we think modern humans are in Europe. So that's a quick and dirty recount of kind of what that talk was. I don't know who came in hotter, Kara with the question or you with the answer. So quick and dirty. Let's see. I'm right in the middle of teaching the Pleistocene in my introduction to biological anthropology course right now. What we're talking about, broadly speaking, is like Homo erectus, Homo ergaster, and all the other Homo, basically all Homo, right? So when we teach this, we still come in with these very polarized models of out of Africa and multi-regional, right? Those are still in a textbook. And the way I teach it is I tell them, these are far ends of a spectrum. And if you've learned anything in my class, it's that there is almost never mutually exclusive options. They're almost always in the middle. But we're still teaching these two models to give students some clarity as to what the conversations and arguments were. I'm curious how you, as someone who is in the middle of the field and actually wrestling with these concepts, as a paleoanthropologist who is teaching this, how do you handle conveying that to undergrads? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things I'd say is that even the way you introduced that, Chris, in terms of Homo erectus and Homo ergaster and Homo antecessor and Homo heidelbergensis, one of the things that I really try and emphasize, and it's part of our sort of point of this paper, is we're so focused on the name. You know, think about the way, you know, you go into a museum and museums are changing, fortunately, in, in positive ways, I think. But oftentimes, you know, the classic image of walking into a museum and to like a hall of human origins is you've got a bunch of fossils on the wall, casts of fossils on the wall, and there's just a label with each of them. You know, this is Australopithecus afarensis. This is Australopithecus africanus. This is, it gives the sense that the goal is to figure out what is the label for this. We privilege in the context of scholarship on human origins, the goal is to figure out what is this thing? Is it a Neanderthal? Is it a Homo sapien? Is it something different? Is it something new? How do we classify this archaeological assemblage? Is it Upper Paleolithic? Is it Middle Paleolithic? Is it Initial Upper Paleolithic? As if that is the goal. Part of what I try and convey in the context of teaching is to get students to not worry about the names that we place on these things. Not that the species doesn't matter. I mean, one of the things that I teach at the intro level is I do think, at least when we're talking about mammals, when we're talking about primates, species are a real thing. Species aren't just our creation. They're not just an ontological concept that we have created. I think evolution shapes at least mammals. Well, I'm going to focus on mammals. I'm not, not a biologist broad enough to go beyond that. That is a form of structure variation that evolution shapes biology around. So I think species are a real thing. But I don't think our goal is to identify species. Our goal is to think about what are the evolutionary processes 
that are at play in this, which reflects on what is the biology of the things that we're looking at? What are, how might we sort of approach fossils in terms of what evidence are they providing us? One of the things that I try and emphasize, and I'm teaching my intro class right now, and I, I try and lead with this, is one of my goals for students at that class is to think about evolution with humans and non-human primates as the model organisms, which is a very complex and hard way to think about evolution. It's not C. elegans, it's not yeast, it's not Drosophila. We live a long time and do all kinds of stupid and bizarre things, but there's real value in some of the things that humans and non-human primates do for us to broaden about how we think about how evolution actually operates. Going back to sort of where I began in terms of one of the implicit biases in science is that we're biased by what we already think we know. And one of the textbook ways that we teach evolution more broadly, and certainly human evolution, is we start from sort of the simple case studies and build up, which maybe that's correct. Maybe that's a good way of doing it. But it lends itself to students, especially students who don't like, you know, stay within it for a long time to think that those simple cases are representative of the reality. I think when we think about how we interpret human biology, for example, as a product of evolutionary history, there's a tendency to, and it's one of the complaints I think that we as biological anthropologists often think about, to be overly reductionist in how we think about our own biology, to think of things in overly deterministic kinds of ways. And I think part of that is a product of how we teach it that we do, we're emphasizing these sort of typologies, we're emphasizing the outcome as opposed to the process and trying to get people to really engage, like how does evolution operate? How does evolution operate in a complex organism like humans that you know have overlapping multiple generations existing at the same time? What does it mean that over the last 2 million years, one of the biggest changes is we've just expanded this period of childhood development, why? Like what evolutionary forces could have shaped that expanded childhood development? Why would they have shaped that? What does it mean from an evolutionary standpoint? Yesterday in my class, we just started talking about the Pleistocene and I started talking about like, what does it mean that we've encephalized our brain? So we talk about, you know, Homo erectus as being a, a larger brain and a larger brain relative to the body size. What is the brain doing from an evolutionary perspective? How is it shaping how natural selection might be operating? How might we look at it from a neutral perspective? Because we're too often focused on natural selection as if everything is adaptive? What does it mean that we've been small populations for essentially the entirety of our evolutionary history until the last 15,000 years or so? So how would drift be playing out in this? And to try and really get students thinking about process as opposed to what is the label I need to place on this? I really like that. And that's the approach I take as well, where I will present them the names and then alternative names because... There are alternative names for all of them and alternative species names as well. And then looking at the trends and exactly that, the processes that may have led to the trends and what those trends could have done as well with this interaction between our own biology and the environment. So I really, really like that. And also because we're kind of talking about names and the meaning of names, I think it's a good way to bring up the other presentation that you had at the AABAs. This one co-authored with friend of the pod, Robin Nelson, who we've had on before. And this one was called The Population Problem, a Primary Unit with No Definition. You all take a bit of an historical approach of how the word population has been used and defined in different ways uh, throughout anthropology, starting all the way with Dijansky. So I'm wondering if you could kind of walk us through, one, the inspiration of like, did you wake up one morning and be like, you know what we need? We need a discussion on the word population and its definitions. So tell us the inspiration and then, you know, tell us why it's problematic and we might need to address this term more formally in a proper framework. 
Yeah, so there's a couple different streams that come together to sort of form this work. And this paper that Robin and I just gave a couple weeks ago was really a little bit of a carryover from the year before, because previous year, we had actually organized an invited session, bringing together folks from across different subfields of bioanth to talk about population. That got scrapped because of COVID and like we couldn't quite reconstitute the pieces. So this was sort of our theoretical impetus for putting together that invited session a year ago, though. And part of it from my perspective. So care if we go back to Michigan, first year that I taught at Michigan. So I finished my PhD in 2006. And then I was a lecturer for two years before starting here at Wellesley College. That first year, I taught three classes. I taught osteology, I taught population genetics, and I taught race and human evolution. So three topics that I actually, I still teach essentially all those classes today, but also that in some ways reflect the viewpoint that I bring to thinking about human evolution. Uh, you know, I'm anatomically, morphologically focused. I'm a fossil person for the most part, but I do a lot of genetics kind of stuff. And I take the perspective and thinking about human evolution of largely a population genetics perspective, thinking about evolution in the Pleistocene as a population process, one that we understand through sort of the classic theoretical development of the modern synthesis. I'm not a paleontologist. I, I don't come from a strong paleontologist background training in terms of the large timescale. I see most of the discussions of human evolution in the Pleistocene as a very small scale kind of problem. And then trying to figure out how can our evidence provide the kinds of answers that we're looking for. And then in the context of the race class, looking at the other end of that in terms of how does the way in which we understand patterns of human variation, how does that echo and reverberate all around us in so many different ways? Um, I'm actually teaching that class right now too. And so we're actively engaging with these conversations in terms of what does it mean that say medical geneticists uh, you know, categorize a sample of humans in different kinds of ways and to say African-American versus European-American. What does it mean that in the context of genetic ancestry, we classify, you know, oh, that's West African ancestry or, you know, 23andMe says I'm like part Scandinavian, which is a geographical place or part Ashkenazi, which is a, you know, cultural ethnic tradition. What does it mean that we apply all these different terms to what should in theory be a central concept. You know, when I teach my intro class, the definition of evolution that I repeat again and again and again, actually, in all my classes, is evolution is heritable change in a population over time. So heritable change, we got that, though, that gets some funny nuance around that, but heritable change, over time, we got that. And that population, the central part, is kind of uninterrogated, it's just kind of sitting there. And I wanted to work with Robin on this because she's brilliant. And she also works with living people as opposed to, you know, fossils and stuff like that, like I do. So to sort of round out a perspective and really interrogate, like, how do we actually use the term population? So we did a bibliometric survey of the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, now the American Journal of Biological Anthropology. We looked at 2018 to 2020, three years of publications. And basically like a third of the publications in that time frame reference population in their abstract. And so we looked at all of those papers and classified them by the different sort of subfield that they're coming out of. Pretty much all of the subfields regularly invoke population, but what population means in all those contexts is wildly variable. Populations are represented in those papers by samples as small as a single individual, which occurs multiple times across different subfields, to as large as there was a paper using uh, Chinese surnames, a database of Chinese surnames from the quote unquote Chinese population that's a 1.4 billion person population. So. The population size, the numbers associated with populations range from 1 to 1 1.4 billion people. They encompass the descriptors that are used to describe populations, to define them really, range from 
geographic definitions that extend from a single locality, like we were studying the chimpanzees at Ngogo in Kabale Forest, to Asia or Africa, so continental kinds of descriptions. Time is the most common description used in studies in anthropology, and that can be anything from contemporary versus ancient to the middle horizon. So very specific archeological or historical kinds of time references. So there's really no consistency to the way in which the term population gets invoked, which is maybe problematic. I mean, if it is a core theoretical idea, you can make an argument against it being problematic. I would say it is problematic. And I'd say it's problematic because it makes it hard to integrate the different kinds of evidence that we hope to apply. So for example, in the context of the collaboration that I've been working with with MICA in Central Asia and Kazakhstan, we started working in Kazakhstan in part because it's this really interesting hole in the fossil record. We don't have a ton of fossils coming out of Central Asia. Um, there are some fossils, and interestingly, the fossils that are there are kind of ambiguous, like are they Neanderthal, are they Homo sapiens, are they something else, maybe Denisovans? We've got a lot of ancient DNA coming out of Central Asia that is both Neanderthal, Denisovan, also some modern humans, depending on how we choose to classify things. We've got archaeological evidence that, you know, gets interpreted as being either associated with middle Paleolithic and archaic populations or upper Paleolithic and quote unquote modern populations. So we were trying to figure out, like, how do we even connect these different pieces of evidence? How do we make the archaeological evidence speak to the genetic evidence, speak to the fossil evidence? The population, again, theoretically, is that central unit. But what does it mean and what work is it doing in these different kinds of contexts? The other reason I think it matters, and this is why we sort of went into a historical reference, is again, we oftentimes associate that evolution is, you know, heritable change in the population over time to folks like Dobzhansky coming out of the modern synthesis of the 1930s. When he publishes Genetics and the Modern Human Origins in 1937. And if you go back to those even original sort of publications, the way in which Dobzhansky is just one example talks about populations is not at all consistent. He invokes really in that work geographic populations, so individuals that are basically living in the same area, breeding populations, or what he later calls Mendelian populations, and populations that are sort of described based on their phenotypic similarity. So if you're a naturalist out in the field, what you would recognize as being part of, say, this subspecies of North American squirrel versus that subspecies of North American squirrel. So this phenotypic definition, this geographic definition, and this reproductive definition. And those match on to the many varied ways in which we describe populations today. So we haven't really moved past that initial confusion as to what we mean by populations. I would argue that theoretically, in terms of what evolution is doing, that notion of a reproductive population or a population that's associated specifically with the transmission of heritable elements from one generation to the next, again, coming out of a population genetics background, is theoretically the most meaningful category. But obviously, the ability to get evidence that addresses that definition of population is really varied by subfields. As a paleoanthropologist, I can probably never hope to get that evidence unless you know, I'm at a site where there is ancient DNA, for example, that can be recovered from the fossils or from the sediment. For primatologists, they can maybe get at that data. They can look at multi-generational genealogical pedigree data from an observation site, maybe. Human biologists maybe can get some of that data, but it's a real challenge. And the other final part of that is how the public then understands what it is we're talking about. And by the public, I mean, you know, our students, yeah, the members of our communities, but I also mean, you know, doctors, public health officials. 
who build off of our research. Because one of the outcomes of these varied ways in which we talk about populations is we make every category we invoke, every different way we invoke of describing populations real. It is a product of evolution. You know, we study evolution. Evolution is heritable change in a population over time. So when we invoke it in all these different ways, we legitimize the reality as an evolutionary unit for all these different ways we invoke it. And that's definitely problematic because it encourages these false reifications of biological difference. You know, think categories like race or gender or some of these topics, but it also just makes it difficult, I think, for the public to consume the kind of knowledge that we're producing. So I, I heard this talk. I didn't hear the first one. And either in your talk, in comments after, or on Twitter in response to your talk, someone had used breastfeeding populations. And I don't remember if you had pointed that example out or someone in the audience. I think several people were like, oh, shit, I've been guilty of that. And I think even Robin mentioned that she had been guilty of that until the two of you started working on this paper. And it reminds me of even a more basic problem, which is when we use the word evolution, are we conflating it with progress and outside of our mouths because we're not clear enough in how we are using it and making those types of distinctions? It is often used by non-anthropologists synonymously with progress or in such a general way that they get conflated. So I, I completely see what you're saying. And I think folks outside of our discipline might think that we are nitpicking, but when you try to teach and convey these concepts and there's so much misinformation that people have been socialized on for the first 18 years of their lives, it's truly a morass to, to wade through, to be able to dissuade students of false notions and then I guess, socialize them into narrower definitions of words that have gotten out there. It's almost like, can we really put the toothpaste back in the tube on population and evolution? One of the other threads that fed into this paper was actually online conversations I was having largely through Twitter with geneticists about how they use the term, because they are having their own sort of discussion about the term. And I remember I was in a, a sort of back and forth, not in no ways an argument, sort of a discussion with someone. I, I, I apologize for whoever it is, because I'm I don't remember who it was. I think it might have been Alvin Scalby, but I don't remember. Where basically he was like, well, I don't really think species are a thing, but populations are definitely a thing. And I was kind of like, well, I do think species kind of are a thing, but I'm not really sure populations are a thing. Those basic kind of uninterrogated assumptions about what are the basic units that are the outcome of evolutionary forces, that are the outcome of evolutionary processes. I think it's not just nitpicky. I think it's actually worth engaging deeper and thinking about those because we all use the term i mean you said you're guilty we're all guilty i don't i don't think it's a question of guilt or not it's a question of like how can we do better in terms of consistently identifying what it is we're talking about and the significance of what it is that we're talking about yeah i think that's nice and i, I think chris also brought up a really good point and it's something that i know you're also passionate about which is public education and outreach and that takes place in your classroom and you've expanded beyond your classroom too, by making so many of your materials available online. So maybe you could let folks who are listening know what it is you have made available and how they can access it. Because especially in COVID times, and we're still always in and out, having additional online resources has become a pot of gold for folks. Yes, I was an early MOOC person, so massively open online courses. So Wellesley, for a while, was partnered with edX, uh, based out of MIT, Cambridge, and I developed actually Wellesley's first MOOC course, which was my human evolution course. 
Um, so this is back in like 2013, fall 2013. And for that course, I worked with a fantastic actually videographer who was then at edX, James Donald. But we filmed like 500 hours of mini lectures. In the end, I think I think it's about 180 hours of actually recorded footage that went into the class. Most of it divided into sort of like three to seven minute segments because lots of data suggests that for viewing passive content, that's sort of the ideal time range in terms of how long is a viewer going to stick with this. But all around sort of the way I teach human evolution for the most part. Since then, I've sort of used those materials, those online materials. And I think you can still access an archived version of the course on edX's website. I don't, edX has changed, so I don't know where it stands, but it's Wellesley 207X Introduction to Human Evolution was the course. But all the video content for that belongs technically to me and Wellesley. So as edX has changed and it was harder to access the stuff on their portal, I just download it all and upload it to a YouTube channel. So if you look for my name on YouTube or 207X, you'll find a YouTube channel and we can probably put it in like, you know, show notes or something like that. But there's like 145 videos, especially with that class there. Both of the talks actually that we were just talking about from the recent AABA meetings, they're both up there too, actually. So watch them if you were excited by our, our teaser for them. You know, I, I teach fairly small classes at Wellesley. Wellesley is a pretty small institution. Most of my classes are the 15 to 25 students. The first time I taught 207X, where I was sort of actively involved in the production of the course, it had like 10,000 students. Over the years, I think the material has been viewed like 35,000 times or something like that. So in terms of the breadth of impact, you know, I think the more people are able to see materials, the better. A lot of people are interested and they just don't know where to go. So find, developing public-facing resources is something that I'm always keen about. I just wanted to add, as someone who's not a paleoanthropologist, some of the things that you're, you're talking about, like this privileging of out of Africa over Asia, I hear you because I feel it when I teach. And to overcome that slightly, I use a John Hawks lecture where he really talks a lot about Asian Neanderthals and Denisovans. And what I wanted to put on record and recommend to folks out there is that they use resources like Adams when they hit sections of their syllabus that they're not as much of an expert in. And because the field is changing, and if you're uncomfortable with the older concepts or framing of this, as I have increasingly gotten uncomfortable with. It's really beautiful to hear that there are resources out there by experts that we can draw on. Yeah, the, the proximate motivation for me getting everything up on YouTube was the Omicron arriving just as mm -hmm. folks were preparing materials for the spring semester. And I was like, oh, well, here's a bunch of materials. If you got to bow out or the, the bandwidth to do this right now, use my stuff. That's why I put all my stuff on my website too. It's like, why make somebody do the work that's already been done? Like just take freely. <laughs> it's great. Anyway, to wrap up two questions, we're going to try to wrap up into one of one, what are you up to next? And two, what do you do for fun? What kind of completes you as a person? And I know hiking is one of them because I see your beautiful pictures on Facebook all the time. I do love hiking. So what I'm up to next academically is writing up these two papers, a couple other papers in the works too. Finding the time to do these things these days is a little bit challenging, but I also do have a book project that ties into some of these things related to um, genomics also. So fuzzy genomes, if I ever have the time to sit down and finish that. 
but so just doing that, trying to, you know, get by academically wise, teaching wise, all that kind of stuff. My wife is also an academic, so she's a early modern French literature scholar. So we're both deep in it now in year three of, of COVID. But yeah, I like to get outside whenever I can. We just lost our longtime dog about a month ago. He was 15, so we had to put him down. He had cancer. But we realized like that was a big hole. And best way to fill that hole was get another dog. So we've got a new dog uh, who I'm about to take out now. But it's spring here in New England, which means it's back to hiking for me. As my kids have gotten older, to go back to where we started the conversation, it's been interesting as a 40-something-year-old and no longer the parent of young children for the first time in a decade, to realize I can like regain who I am, like backcountry camping, overnight hikes, things like that. So that definitely awaits me this summer a little bit more. That and cooking. I love cooking. Ooh. What do you like to cook? I like to cook things that my family will eat. <laughs> Oh, anyway, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us about many fascinating things and all the really cool introspective, at least from the field, uh, sense of things work that you and others are doing. So thank you again. 